0: Hey everyone, first off we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose land we are producing this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Alright, let's go! Hello, and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Tim, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Letizio Bonagno, Letizia is a medical anthropologist working on issues of care and pharmaceuticals. We speak today about her fieldwork in social clinics of solidarity in Athens and the impact of austerity policies on people seeking healthcare in Greece at that time. We also discuss modes and practices of care during times of crisis and the role of graphic ethnography as a form of ethnographic practice. I've been following her work for some time and it was a real privilege to be able to speak with her. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So, here it is, my interview with Dr. Letizia Bonagno. Really great to talk with you today, Letizia,
1: and thanks so much for making the time. Thanks to you, Tim, for inviting me to this chat that I'm sure is going to be great and fun. I guess
0: a really good place to start is your long-term fieldwork in Athens uh, during the economic crisis, really in the middle of a period of time in which Greece saw a series of harsh economic austerity measures which came into effect. My understanding is that these measures were implemented from 2010 until 2017, Mm -hmm. Can you set the scene for the listener in terms of what was going on at the time you were conducting your fieldwork in Athens and perhaps what the conditions were like for people in Greece at the time in terms of the impacts of austerity?
1: Yes, uh, thanks team. So yeah, I started my fieldwork in Athens in July 2015 and actually I landed in Greece on the day of the referendum when basically Syriza government called people to vote to remain in Europe and to accept or not and they were asked uh, whether they wanted to accept or not another memorandum mm-hmm. and the majority of Greeks voted against these new austerity package and at that moment like the the atmosphere was great there was much hope and expectations about how things would possibly turn out for the better but a couple of days after the um, prime minister Alexis Tsipras uh, actually signed the, the memorandum and that was perceived basically as the ultimate betrayal. Like that the state, the government was giving to to people. So in 2015, Greece had been in crisis, so to speak, uh, for six years already. The general feeling was that of disenchantment, but also the crisis was pretty much normalized. It was just like something that people would talk about all the time, and especially like, not especially to me, but as a foreigner and as an ethnographer, many of them felt like they had possibly to justify the, the situation and what happened and given a explanation to, to what possibly was perceived outside Greece as a unfair treatment that Europe was inflicting on a relatively small country and i don't know if you ever heard of this kind of very unfortunate acronym pigs uh, by which like international commenters normally they've uh, these countries that were more hardly hit by the crisis and uh, pigs uh, stands for portugal italy greece and spain i th- i think it was a very unfortunate way to to describe these countries in the sense that in a way the economic crisis became a sort of judgment on the morality of the governments of these countries and somehow this divide between like the uh, the very productive and efficient northern uh, european countries and uh, the lazy southerners got even bigger and stronger so that's just to say that the time by the time i arrived in greece for my field work yeah the the crisis was of course horrible and impacted on people on so many levels and in so many ways but it was a diffused and generalized crisis that impacted all like southern european countries and i'm saying that because i i'm italian i come from italy and i In that same period, Italy was going through a similar economic crisis and the Italian government basically threatened citizens basically saying if we don't accept austerity measures, we'll end up like Greece. So at Mm. the time, Greece was like the ultimate example of how things could go wrong, basically.
0: Sure. And so Letizia, in terms of how that was experienced on the ground, My understanding is that the public healthcare system in Greece underwent significant budget cuts throughout that period of time, in the sense that many healthcare facilities were closed or or merged. There were substantial cuts to the health sector, I guess, more broadly. But, you know, in terms of that impact on healthcare personnel and wages and and things like, you know, pharmaceutical expenses, for example, which is a very tangible thing that we can talk about in a lot more detail shortly. But I guess this in no doubt really placed a great many people in a really precarious position. And I guess particularly those that were more vulnerable or, or had unmet health and needs. So I'm thinking here of those that were living below the poverty line or, or those that were perhaps, you know, older citizens. In terms of access to and the provision of healthcare, can you perhaps speak to some of the, the challenges that were experienced by Greeks at that time?
1: I think, like, what is quite important to clarify is that the public healthcare system in Greece has been dysfunctional since its very foundation in the 1980s in the sense that it's never been completely inclusive and it was somehow universal, but access to different services was somehow tied to insurance and there was a very complex system of reimbursement there were problems in that sense even before the crisis the economic crisis which of course like was the like final blow to disrupt it basically and as you as you mentioned that yes like since 2010 like Many, as you know, hospitals were closed down or merged. The number of medical doctors was dramatically reduced. And of course, this impacted on the quality of services that were provided. And at some point, uh, some statistics reported that in 2015, there were about 3 million Greeks that Mm -hmm. couldn't access public health care. Because at that point, there was a fee, very little actually, was introduced uh, to access different services. But in a moment where the rate of unemployment was impressively high, where people more and more were living below the poverty line, also 20 euros to book whatever appointment uh, felt like a a massive investment. And this, of course, impacted everyone one way or another that's like and of course more vulnerable groups more vulnerable people like were even more violently impacted by these reforms but there was a generalized difficulty in like accessing healthcare services and like trying to meet one medical needs basically sure sure know i guess a background to that as well as also the
0: increasing privatization of the healthcare system prior to the austerity measures coming into effect
1: as well right yeah and that was like uh, something that i found in a way interesting as an ethnographer as an anthropologist interested in but at the same time was rather disturbing while basically public hospitals were closed down i mean people's like complaints about not accessing care resources, there were these super fancy private medical hubs that were mushrooming, uh, especially in southern Athens. Mm-hmm. And basically, they were part of what became a sort of medical tourism. So right. people from like different places would fly into Athens to, yeah, receive whatever treatments and of course these treatments were much cheaper uh, Mm -hmm. than elsewhere probably but still the majority of Greeks couldn't actually afford them so there there was this massive gap in the quality of services that people could access on a merely economic basis Mm
0: -hmm. So, Letizia, that provides a really good background to the social clinics of Solidarity or the, or the KIAs, which emerged in the wake of the, the economic crisis of, of 2008. And I'm just wondering, was their emergent like seen as a direct response to the economic crisis itself?
1: To an extent, yes. I would say that the KIAs uh, are a response to the economic crisis but I think that, once again, it's an, in general, it's important to contextualize this kind of uh, initiatives in a more historical perspective, in the sense that before the crisis, the, um, the Orthodox Church would somehow provide some sort of medical services or would launch this kind of screening programs for breast cancer so in a way that's always been this sort of fragmentations and like uh, philanthropic institutions would trying to compensate a bit for what the public health care system wasn't really able able to provide so in a way I would say that the social clinics of solidarity stand in some sort of continuation with this fragmented provision of uh, care services Uh, but of course like under austerity the number of these initiatives like multiplied uh, dramatically Mm. so by the time I arrived in Athens and I started my fieldwork. There were at least 28 social clinics and those were, let's say, registered, like sort of known. And many of them had Facebook pages or websites, but probably there were others. There were more that somehow escaped uh, my attention or went like exactly known or advertised on the internet.
0: Were they regulated by the state in that sense, Letizia, or did they operate kind of outside of it? I mean, I'm trying to understand how they kind of fit into that kind of ecosystem of healthcare within... Greece at that time?
1: That's actually a very interesting question that might take quite some time to answer, because uh, I'll I'll keep it short. So uh, this is maybe a bit of a generalization, but many, the majority actually of these uh, social clinics uh, were financially supported by Syriza MPs, Mm-hmm. So uh, they weren't really controlled by the state, but still have some sort of relation to, okay. to the state. But after the very famous and unfortunate uh, referendum of July 2015, uh, there was a quite interesting shift because like the people involved in uh, some of these social clinics, Basically denied their uh, proximity to Syriza and they would like declare that like we don't have anything to do with wow. Syriza or with the government, which is somehow understandable. But I found that like quite quite interesting actually. And when I tried to inquire into the relation between like the social clinic, especially one social clinic, and uh, and Syriza, and asking like the woman who was one of the organizers, she's like, how do you pay the rent uh, for this for this place? And how do you avoid controls by, I don't know, the pharmaceutical authority of Greece? Mm. Uh, she was she was very elusive and she would answer just like, oh, we do what we do and we are doing fine by now. <laughs> this might sound like a critique it's it's of course not and like yeah it was part of the way in which like these clinics operated to to receive funding and like was quite necessary because many of them became a like, sort of like very established uh, medical mm-hmm. providers as a sort of shadow uh, care system and in a way I mean I suppose that when we talk about, Biomedicine, we cannot really escape the control of the state in mm-hmm. a sense. I mean, in uh, these the social clinics had um, worked thanks to the voluntary works of medical doctors, and they are quite, by definition, a manifestation of the state, right? Sure. Like they administrate biomedicine. So that's just a an example to sure. think about this relation, very controversial and complicated relationship between state and grassroots. Yeah, initiative.
0: A, a complicated relationship indeed. Yeah, and and you've alluded to, I, I guess, a little bit about how um, the kia is operated. But I guess just to back up a little bit, your your fieldwork was really conducted with a focus on the social pharmacy, which was attached to a particular kia. Can you tell me about how the key is operated in a general sense and, in particular, how the social pharmacy operated within, within that kind of framework?
1: Well, actually, I ended up like, doing fieldwork in, uh, in the social pharmacy and I ended up writing about pharmaceuticals quite by chance in the sense that when I started my field work, my, my Greek was like not very good. Mm-hmm. So after long negotiations with the the organizer of the of the social clinic, at the social clinic, basically they accepted me and but they were pretty much clear that like, your Greek is bad. So stay in the pharmacy and do things with this right. other volunteers and so okay. and that's how I ended up spending many days like literally counting pills and fixing packages of of medications and uh, how the social pharmacy worked well none of us was a pharmacist uh, mm-hmm. the pharmacist a proper real pharmacist would come in like twice a week uh, to, to distribute to actually give uh, medications to the people registered as patients okay. but basically the the work of the pharmacy was all about uh receiving checking and ordering these parcels of medications that people from the neighborhood for instance, would bring in mm-hmm. uh, i mean in a quite um erratic way i mean sometimes uh, someday you we would have like massive bags of things and other days just like a little bag of paracetamol for instance it was a quite repetitive and boring field work I must say and Mm -hmm. I always like laugh a bit when I hear about people having very exciting field work and just like oh my god I did this and that just like okay no mine was very boring actually I was sitting all today with this like Mm -hmm. massive amount of different pills and blisters and things and that will have been doing for almost one year but at the same time was very very much insightful in the sense that this massive amount of uh, medication made me question first of all where do they come from and what happened and how come that people like you know normal people, normal citizens or whatever, would be able to donate such massive amounts of medications of very different kinds also. So I guess these sort of uneventful days in the pharmacy were actually the the ethnographic cue that eventually led me to, to reflect on my the work of pharmaceuticals more in general and how, yeah, somehow pharmaceuticals have always been part of, or a crucial actually, aspect of the public health care system in Greece. Also how they basically um, shaped relations of care within the household or amongst kin and friends. Mm -hmm. Um, There are like what we could call ethnographic vignettes about like me being offered uh, Lexotan, uh, which is an anxiolytics, and so like, "Oh, you're so stressed. I have some of these." And I was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> or uh, yeah, or yeah, friends and my, uh, fellow volunteers would tell me how it's very common to, to share medications by amongst mm. friends and side on the basis that we might have similar symptoms, so the yeah, effects of a uh, any given medication should be the same for, for me and for you.
0: And we might touch on that in our discussion shortly, but thinking about the modes and practices of care, but just, just a moment ago you were speaking, I guess, I guess what we could think about the pharmaceuticalization of care. And mm-hmm. I guess often that's thought about as a response and to some degree a consequence of forms of neglect or an abandonment by the state. And I'm thinking here about the work of Joao Beal and others and in your research, you've spoken about the epistemological potential of pharmaceuticals to bring to light and reshape those modes and practices of care. And in your fieldwork in Athens, this was best demonstrated by the way in which the key is operated and that, that circulation and sharing and exchange of those, mm-hmm. of those medicines and pharmaceuticals, reinforcing those collective social bonds. I wonder if you can explain what you mean about... Resocializing of care
1: the general understanding of pharmaceuticals like in a in much medical anthropology scholarship is about how pharmaceuticals like taking medication is a quite solitary act mm-hmm. and how pharmaceuticals basically or the increasingly pharmaceuticalization of care uh, resulted in this kind of individualization of health and care. It's just like uh, you become a responsible subject basically and you take your own medications at the right time and um, in the right way. Yeah. Um, so that was like my departing point, And like that helped me basically contest in in a sense this understanding of pharmaceuticals. Because what I've seen while I was in Athens is that actually sharing Uh, medications was a way to show care to each other and it was like not just or not only within like the perimeter of the family but at at the community level so it's just like we volunteers are sorting medications and checking medications and we are redistributing Mm -hmm. those to the people in need and this is like a quite uh, powerful mode of care perhaps like in absence of more effective ways of caring of, of providing medical care but at the same time I do think that like this idea of like sharing medications or like talking about uh, and thinking about uh, pharmaceuticals was very much already in the domestic mode of care. uh, Pharmaceuticals have always been there. So basically to to simplify it to the extremes, like this domestic mode of care based on pharmaceuticals Mm -hmm. were in a way extracted and relocated in the social pharmacy and the social clinics. And it's quite interesting the fact that there were so many overlapping between the probably idealized understanding of family and what the social clinic was meant to do so for instance uh, volunteers would describe themselves as a big family as a family mm-hmm. and as such we or they I, I don't know how to locate myself at this point but like we are part of a family and we care for each other and like uh there was a bit of this social reproduction in place in terms uh-huh. of language it's like we are family we we help each other and we help the people that are in need and and there was a very strong uh, gender aspect to that because the majority of the volunteers were women so mm-hmm. which are the carers like quite by definition, controversial definition, I know but traditionally there there is this idea that the, the mother is the one who cares for, for everyone. And so there were many mothers in the social clinics, let's say
0: yeah. And, and I guess that context is important as well, like by extension, the, the mode of care and the practice of care are really contextual to the place and the time in which it's situated as well. And you've written about this in some of your work. And I guess that extends as well to that understanding and meaning. So in, in your field, work, what did you find in terms of how these understandings and practices of care played out in the context of the care? I mean, you've, you've spoken a little bit about it just now, but I was thinking about there's other practices like, um, for example, the kind of polypharmacy and the self-medication and
1: active storing medicines at home, for example. This brings me back to, to the second question you asked me about the public health care system in Greece. And I guess like the fact that it had always been like rather dysfunctional, somehow not pushed, but resulted in people. Like relying on, relying more on the pharmacy, the local pharmacy and the pharmacist and like trying to avoid as much as they could the, the doctor, right? And right. Besides these, I guess like there are other, like other aspects that are perhaps important to, to mention. And one of these is that like that in Greece, there's been like this massive rural urban divide. So the majority of hospitals are still in mainland. So in this many small villages and islands, people would definitely go to the pharmacist. And up until 2010, it was very easy to, to go to the pharmacy and get whatever medication and then get them their reimbursement. And -hmm. that was very true for antibiotics, but for any other medication yeah, right. uh, person i need yeah. so like polypharmacy it's is definitely an aspect that emerged during my field work even though that by then like the policies on pharmaceuticals um were already had already uh, changed in the sense that uh, the an electronic prescribed system was introduced doctors were asked to prescribe the generics and not the branded medications. And they tried to enforce uh, the government this stricter controlling mechanism on pharmaceutical consumption. But I guess this wasn't out of public health uh, concern, rather out of this need to cap the public expenditure on pharmaceutical and healthcare services. So it's just like... And when that happened, and of course, like many, many, many people couldn't really get uh, the medication therapies they needed, they they resorted to to the social pharmacy, where of course there were some sort of uh, controlled distributions of of medication. I mean, you couldn't go there and say, "Oh, I need this. and mm-hmm. you would given. I mean, you you needed uh the prescription uh of a doctor but still it was a bit more relaxed and uh i i witnessed a couple of times this sort of a massive fights between a patient and a volunteer at the front desk because this person wanted a certain kind of a branded medication this uh this woman uh, the front desk was trying to convince him that the generic was as good as the branded um, mm. but that was like it was like a yeah escalation of rage and like accusation, like you want us to die and it was very wow. dramatic but i guess besides everything i found it like sort of indicative of, of the meaning and the the power that medications have in uh, shaping like ideas of health and and care and like medications became like quite central uh in people's lives and was to to talk about the crisis right this kind of metaphorical of uh
0: and i guess there's a great deal that's been written about this you know notion that pharmaceuticals have become a substitute for care as well and i think now yeah. kind of the start of this interview we, we touched on that as well and i guess that general argument kind of persists that Increasing that individualization of care and by way of provision of pharmaceuticals, and by extension, that greater resort to, to, to medications and other drugs is, is really linked to that decline of medical infrastructure itself. Yeah. But I guess in your work, the sharing of medicines in the case of the Kia really contradicts this, right? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about this in the way that those biomedical technologies? our experience when they, they become more enmeshed with those ecologies of care in the context of, you know, Greek in a period of austerity. It's quite fascinating in terms of the way that that played out. Yes.
1: So, yeah, you are absolutely right. Again, I'm thinking about, like, the work of Joao Biel. And, mm-hmm. like, I guess is one of the first writing about the correlation of the waning of the medical infrastructure and this rise in the pharmaceutical consumption. And it's like what I found quite interesting is how it focuses on like the role of kinship as a uh, mediator between like, the disregard of the state and the increased levels of pharmaceutical consumption. And this is something that I also observed in Greece while I was doing fieldwork this prominence of, of kinship as well as a welfare providers. that's a long story, traditionally it's been like that, but also as a, as a care provider. And I think that to, to answer your question, when we think about pharmaceuticals, probably we have to take into account uh, how they are, of course, object of biomedicine, so there's a chemical component like healing, Substances that, that there are there, they have their effects, but they're also like a more social and socialized understanding of pharmaceuticals in the sense that it's not pretty much about their healing power, but it's about how sharing them makes you feel part of a community or you feel they make you feel cared for. And I'm thinking, for instance, about Stefan X. Work uh, about pharmaceutical citizenship mm-hmm. and about how in India antidepressants basically once they uh, were put uh, on the market with lower prices really had this promise, had the promise of the marginalization, just like people accessing medications can feel again part of a, of a broader community. So mm-hmm. in a way, i want. To work partially but of course like the greek context was like slightly different but uh, when i wrote or i talk about the sociability of pharmaceuticals i uh, i have in mind this process by which like the pharmaceuticals can create a sense of inclusion and community of care and uh, not much because they put back on your feet but because like they do that of course <laughs> it's not that are useless in um, for like strictly medical medical reason but it's more about yeah the process of being seen and being care and having your needs your seen and acknowledged and, and met in a way and this is like, sort of a general definition of care in terms of like, see about and acknowledging someone needs and trying to, to meet, uh, these, uh, these needs. I'm thinking about like the work of Tatiana Tell and been uh, like, a kind of guru for me when it comes to, to care, but also like about thinking, when it comes to think about care between like kinship and the state. So, okay. which are, yeah. Quite important aspects of my research. Somehow I work at the intersection of these two big bodies of literature. I think it's a rather quite productive way to, yeah, to look at uh, care, pharmaceutical care.
0: Letizia, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about your ethnographic practice because Mm -hmm. your work differs from a lot of other ethnographers and a lot of anthropologists and that has a visual element as well. And Mm -hmm. you've written about the notes from your first month of fieldwork being filled with, I quote, a deep sense of displacement and bewilderment as a foreigner and as a young woman in Athens. And I found that really fascinating in terms of the way that led you to to drawing as a as a kind of ethnographic practice I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that
1: the reasons and the way i start drawing while i was in athens first of all links to the fact that my fieldwork was boring and like and i guess and besides being boring uh, at the beginning especially with it was very difficult mm. um, which this instead like links to the fact that as a woman alone in Athens, I was a bit like maybe a weird character or something like that, but that's very bad. So I'm going to clarify this uh, last sentence. Uh, there was a bit like this conversational approach to me anytime, especially when I started making contacts with the social clinic, mm-hmm. which, which was run mainly by middle age, middle class people, men and women that would ask me, it's like, are you alone in Athens? I was like, yes. Are you married? I was like, no. She's like, but you're not that young. Do you have children? I was like, mm, no. So like, ah. And at that end of the conversation, but at some point right. this thing, uh, like... <laughs> Start hunting me. She's like, I must be like out of time and out of place. It's kind of, uh, (laughs) because also, like, uh, matter
0: matter out of place.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally Mary Douglas. (laughs) But also, it was a, I guess, like this kind of ambiguous position of, I would say I'm a, I'm a researcher and I'm doing a PhD, but from the majority many of them I was just a student and as such I was too old to mm. be a student and the age that my age was the age of being married and having children basically right. so that might sound like a, a very unfair generalization of course that wasn't like the, the routine but especially with older people there was a bit of this like surprise and reproach in their words I was like there's something wrong with you so i guess that these two aspects like the not quite exciting field work and like th- this constant feeling that I had has been under examination or or of not doing things right somehow yeah informed or stimulated this thing of drawing and like some friends told me right that that was therapeutic for you and i was like mm-hmm. maybe uh, but it was more a way to yeah make sense of what was happening around me and was up, what was happening to me mainly. I was very egocentric. these drawings are about me not knowing what's happening. But also, I think I really needed to find a way to make fun of certain situations and I sometimes I drew, uh, kind of ironic or paradoxical situations I found myself in. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It really helped me in a way to, to release some tensions that I accumulated in months. And of course, like with times, I, I guess my approach to drawing changed. I mean, not that I was aware, completely aware that it was changing, but it became more uh, a mode of analysis, a way to, a way of reflexivity, basically, self reflexivity and to understand and actually seeing. I, I think I'm a kind of visual person in that sense. I need to see where I am on a blank page, basically. And from that, I can start uh, reasoning and thinking and making sense of other other things. But yeah, that's... uh,
0: Yeah, That's, that's a really great way to put it. And I really like the fact that you talked about, you know, those kind of ironic or paradoxical situations you were in. And in your published work, I think that's really well represented in that visual format which would just be almost impossible to do in in the written form so i guess as a way of communication like you know it's a really strong really powerful way to communicate what that experience was like in your ethnography but i guess you have just touched on it now that that ethnographic practice and that practice of drawing as a way to not only communicate those ideas but to also think and to also like you know really grapple with those Complex ideas must be a really different way of understanding your position as a medical anthropologist in the field.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I wondered uh, for quite a long time uh, about what, like my, like drawing or like this practice of drawing. Is somehow linked to the fact that i'm not uh, an english native speaker and i was doing field work in another language that mm-hmm. still it's not my first language um so maybe for me that was also a way to navigate this kind of linguistic like not challenges but like confusion of yeah you mentioned like drawing or what is generally now known as a graphic ethnography yeah something that is not just about like communicate or disseminate research findings that's a very fancy way to put it but also as a as actually a hermeneutic process it's just like trying to understand while doing I think that also in this sense I've changed things have changed for me because I, I at the beginning i would really focused on yeah, my own experience right it wasn't really the drawing linked to this uh, yeah necessity of making sense of my circumstances and to understand where i stood but then like lately i've started like producing more comics so and it's no longer about me uh, I'm, I'm, I've become more mature in that sense <laughs> but actually yes a way to to tell stories uh, to tell the stories of the people I met and how things happened and where in Athens at that time and yeah probably this kind of like graphic outputs are more relatable and more interesting for like broader audience because I guess I mean I don't see why people should be interested in my personal ethnographic drama, right Even in that case, the the short uh, graphic story that came out in uh, American anthropologist recently was actually the the preparation was actually a very good exercise to to reflect on my research, but also on my take on uh, on medications and the social clinics and of course many questions and issues about like politics of representation came up and about. So in a way, I guess, yeah, it's very different from writing, but somehow the the process and the questions that I face or other people that use drawings and comics in their practice, I guess we face the same kind of questions and issues and doubts about our practices. I'm just thinking here of John Berger's 1972 book,
0: Ways of Seeing, and I remember him talking about how I think it's seeing, seeing coming before words and, you know, that sense of drawing being just as important as a strategy to, to kind of make sense of and firm those kind of multiple temporalities. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, I guess as, as either a You know, someone who practices graphic ethnography, or someone who's reading it, uh, graphic ethnography, as a way of kind of thinking and and you know making sense of that that kind of complex idea is in in some ways better suited to that graphic form, you know, over over that of words, and particularly to non academic audiences as well, right?
1: That's absolutely true because like uh, when we write, we tend to become very mm, academic and I put a lot of theories and academic disciplinary jargon in that and of course like the the taste of the ethnographic things tend to to disappear and to be obscured by theories and and speculation of different kinds and of course that i guess it's uh, it's what alienates many people from anthropology feeling like that is extremely theoretical and like paradoxically removed from the reality which should
0: be the opposite, right? <laughs> but, yeah, of, of course.
1: You know, I mean, I'm
0: I'm definitely a big believer in you know, anthropology and in particular medical anthropology to, to a broader audience. So I think in that sense, you know, it's really, really important as a mode in order to communicate that to people that are interested in anthropology, whether they're practitioners or, or not. I guess that kind of leads me to another little tangent here, but you're also involved in a in a project I understand called Otherwise as well, and I just wonder if you would like to to speak to that a little bit. We're we're obviously big fans of public anthropology at, at The Familiar Strange, but I just wanted to know if you could um, just touch on Otherwise. Of course.
1: So uh, Otherwise is our online magazine uh, mm-hmm. in ethnographic storytelling and i've been part of the editorial collective for one year and a half so i joined like a bit later and uh, as a as a visual editor actually co-visual editor the the aim of otherwise is to propose I suppose a different approach to story ethnographic storytelling uh, which is like informed of course by theories but we don't really want to see theories there and we we want stories it's just like ethnography and like uh stories that are written uh, can be photographs uh visual essays and like uh, comics. And in this sense, I think it's a kind of cool little magazine. Uh, we are quite young, but we have received so far amazing pieces in different formats. And I can now just speak for myself, but for me, it's been an amazing learning experience in the sense that, for instance, in the review process, we do that collectively. So we meet mm. once a month and we read together these submissions and we discuss. Uh, this is a kind of a fantastic, I would say, reflexive process. And personally, because I am now understanding what I like and what I don't like when I write, but also when I read other people's pieces, But also, like collectively, it's a it's great because we start refining our editorial guideline in this sort of processual way through actually sometimes very long uh, discussions (laughs) about like pieces and submissions, and I think like somehow we are, have to say, aligned with this more now more common trend somehow. Begin anthropology outside academia and to people outside academia and sort of like restoring this primacy of ethnography we want stories with our as marco the the editor in chief would say it's like with a beginning middle and a hand that's a, that's what we are looking for and with a clear point of view
0: letizia thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you speaking to me about your fieldwork and graphic ethnography and and the projects that you're involved in um thank you very much
1: well thanks to you for inviting me it was a real pleasure it was really great
0: That was it, me and Letizia Bonagno. Today's episode was produced by me, Tim, with the help of all the other familiar strangers. Special shout out to our executive producer, Matthew Thung. You can subscribe to the Familiar Strange Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. It helps other people find our show and helps make the show better. If you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash strange. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the papers and articles we mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, we'd love to hear from you and you can email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. You can tweet us at TFSTweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music is by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, martin pierce and maudrow thanks for listening see you in two weeks time until then keep talking strange